to have that experience of awe is, at least for the moment, to let go of yourself, to transcend the sense of separation. Many of the great wisdom traditions of the earth have pointed to what we're calling the overview effect. That is to say, they have realized this unity, this oneness of all life on earth and of consciousness and awareness. Hello, Earthlings, and welcome back to The Overview Effect. I'm your host, James Perrin, and I have an incredible guest for you today. Yost Backer is many things. He's an artist, a florist, a restaurateur, designer, entrepreneur, father, and so much more. But most of all, he is an inspiration. Yost's projects over the years have continued to capture our imagination about better ways in which we can be living in this world particularly in the urban world, whether that's through zero-waste restaurants, completely rethinking building designs, integrating foods and living systems. Yoast's projects are known for their incredible impact and just sheer audacity. One of the most recent projects was Future Food System in Fred Square. It was a zero-waste, sustainably built and operated building in the heart of Melbourne CBD, which grew its own food on site for the chefs that inhabited it and cooked there. It was all zero-waste, and it was fucking epic. If you didn't get a chance to see it or hear much about it or read about it, you're in luck because his documentary, Greenhouse by Yoast, is out this week in cinemas across the country, which you should definitely check out. In this conversation today, we talk about a whole lot of topics as usual, everything from Yost's inspirations for his work, his stories from traveling the world in some incredible regions, the impacts of our modern world and society on human health, the idea that technology will save us, our human tendencies towards comfort and convenience, and so much more. But the essence of this conversation, and what I think all of Yost's projects show us, is that we don't have to wait for or demand other people to change. In Yost's words, no revolution started with a politician. If we want to create a better world, we need to be better. And it's not only possible, it's the only way. You're going to love this one. Enjoy Yost back. Cool, Yost. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for coming to the Gin Palace. Yeah, I know. Here we are in this like gin bunker, this beautiful. It's like a retreat, actually, in inner city Melbourne. Um, what a random spot for us to be recording. But what's your link here? Why are we here? I've been doing the flowers here since virtually since Vernon Chalker opened this place in the late nineties, and yeah, still come here every week and install. An arrangement, yeah, beautiful. or two arrangements, yeah. So good. Well, um, I think we might just kick straight into into the first question that I love to ask my guests, which is this idea of the overview effect and this experience that astronauts have when they look at Earth and they feel this paradigm shift in the way that they see the world and they feel this sense of connection to nature and humanity and wanting to do something about it, make changes in their lives. And I've always been inspired by that concept, so I ask people... If you have a story, if you can share an experience or a moment or a period of time that's really changed the way you see the world and has influenced what you choose to do in the world. It's, it's interesting that you say that because when I get myself into really dire situations, you know, like I'll give you an example at Sydney Harbour, building a building and then being told that we weren't allowed to occupy it and because of some strange reason and, you know, the stress... You've obviously got, you know, all these people involved. People have flown to Sydney. You've got whole team. You've invested, you know, a huge amount of money in getting this building up and then suddenly you're being told that you can't occupy it and use it for what it's designed for. What, what, and and I, what, I kind of do that. That was Greenhouse back in 2011. Yes, right, okay. And um, in those moments, what I do is I go up into the sky, literally, and 
just look down on the situation and think, okay, in 20 or 30 or 40 years' time or if, you know, in the grand scheme of things, will I be as stressed then as what I am now? And, you know, always the answer is no. Mm. And ultimately always end up finding a solution, even though it's an incredibly stressful situation, which all these projects that I do tend to, you know, there's a reason why people don't build houses in the middle of town squares and and uh, projects like this. It's because they're incredibly um, difficult to achieve. And so, yeah, it's something that I do a lot. And it's also why I, you know, my, my, my projects, are, I suppose, I think in 100-year times, not... 10-year times mm. or one year or one month, which I think everyone is now so focused on now. That's not how change is made. You've got to think long-term. Mm. Beyond, the, beyond the time frame of our own lives, you know, I think that's a challenge for us is that, I mean, that's certainly something that I experience is sometimes I find it hard to look on beyond my own lifetime. Um, and really we need to and we need to contemplate that even if the change that we want to see in the world doesn't occur within our lifetime it's worth pursuing anyway you know like there's a beautiful quote um that my friend Catherine ingram often uses from a poet um that says on the last day of earth i would want to plant a tree yeah you know so doing it just because it's there's beauty in the act of doing it it's interesting that i just went to see the world's largest tree in uh the, the redwood uh which i'd never i'd always wanted to go i've never been to i just went came back from la i'd never been there before and to stand and 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 or touch a tree that's three thousand two hundred years old is you can't comprehend that you know like it's it was so such a it gave me goosebumps walking around that forest you know and there's obviously you, you can get that in australia as well but i just find that you know, about 20 years ago, Jenny and I were on our honeymoon. We traveled through South America. We spent three, four months traveling through South America. And we ended up in southern uh, Peru where the Ericaria aracana tree grows, which is the monkey puzzle tree. And uh, my father-in-law is a nurseryman, and we called him for his birthday. We're about to climb a volcano, and he said, oh, can you get me some monkey puzzle seed? Um, he, when I met Jenny, he was growing over 2,000 varieties of conifers. So he had one of the biggest collections of conifers in Australia. He's an obsessed botanist. And we're like, no one speaks English here. You know, we'll never be able to find these seeds. Anyway, we go into the, into the supermarket to get supplies to climb the volcano the following day. And there's this pallet bin of pine nuts, chestnut-sized pine nuts. And we've never seen them before. And we're like, this has got to be Ericari Aracana seed. And they're all you know, try and explain, this is how you roast them, this is how you cook them, they're delicious. And anyway, we bought about five kilos of seed, sent it to quarantine in Melbourne, and uh, they all germinated 100%. And <laughs> we've got three of them that we planted on our property in Mombok. So I planted them 20 years ago. And the first tree has got cones now. Now, you know, these trees can live wow. to four, 500 years. And when you plant such a tiny seed, and then you've got to think about okay in 100 years time the they will touch like so you're standing 50 meters away from where the other seed was planted but i'm thinking about okay in 100 years from now they'll actually be too close together you know mm. we never think like that we don't think that long term it's all about uh and you know you can see it with established trees and everybody wants everything to be ready now to there's no room left for evolution and for things to evolve and grow and 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 change Mm. yeah we live in this like we live in this world of urgency you know and it's actually accelerating it's like this crisis of acceleration where things are the life is so fast and it continues to get faster and i actually struggle with this a bit with um so my background being like environmentalism and environmental activism and you know and i see it in portions of the environment and the greens movement which is like it's urgent it's a crisis it's an emergency urgent we need to panic right and part of that grates against me because I'm feeling like we need to slow down. Do you know, like our response to the crisis is contributing to the crisis. And I think what you're talking about really resonates is like we need to think long term. We need to think slow. We need to think about, you know, not what's happening right now in this moment, but much more broadly and go, 
not just what we want to do, but how do we want to be in this world? You know, and just by the act of like slowing down and returning to like nature and closed loops and like natural cycles, that is like the most powerful thing we can do in and of itself. If we do that, then a lot of these other issues that we see will actually sort themselves out. And does that influence your thinking in your work? Well, absolutely, because we came to Australia. I was nine when we came to Australia from the Netherlands. And one thing, we lived in an area called Rustenburg, which is a tiny little town surrounded by water, canal on the front, canal on the side, you know, reclaimed land, land that was under, I think our house was four metres below sea level. And that, that particular area was drained about in the early 1700s, so reclaimed land. And unbelievably beautiful, man-made, definitely, but huge bird life, uh, lots of nature. And um, my dad well, but it, it was heavily polluted at that time, you know, acid rain, a um, lot of pollution, a uh, lot of fish dying. Um, if you, you got told at school that if you fell in the canal, you had to go and see a doctor because the wow. water was so polluted. Wow. And then we came, my dad really wanted to move to Australia, I think to get away from that, my mum and dad both did. And so we migrated to Australia and to come to this place that was wild, like the fact that the roads were windy, like in Holland, all the roads are, all right, even the beach is straight because they built the beach where they wanted the beach, you know what I mean? It's like you yeah. can't comprehend that when you live in Australia because everything's wild you know and so i just fell in love with this place and then we came back on our first trip back was 87 so five years later and um we it was worse the pollution was worse and you know there were it was just not a nice place and then in 93 i went back on my own and spent six months in back working living with my uncle and auntie and at home where where i kind of grew up and it was like it was a a a different place and what had happened was the population got so sick and tired of you know species of frogs going extinct not hearing birds anymore the change in the landscape and they forced such change political change that they banned all these chemicals they weren't allowed to mow the grass anymore because they realized constantly mowing the grass stopped things from um well stopped birds from being able to nest and stopped all these things from happening seeds dropping So you couldn't even see the reflectors on the side of the freeway because the grass was so high and, you know, you weren't allowed to spray along the canals anymore. And what had happened was in less than five or six years, the place had recovered. And what I learned from that is that if we let nature, if we just leave it alone, it'll restore, you know, and if we help it to restore, it's even better. Mm -hmm. It's even quicker. And so... The whale population is, is an example that I use often in Byron Bay. A local uh, told me at Watergo's Beach, we used to go and stay at Watergo's quite a lot when the kids were young, and he said, you know that in 19, I think it was 79, they counted 300 whales that went past. You know, that's when they stopped the whaling station. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 76 it might be, I'm not sure. And then the first time I went to Byron, they were celebrating 10,000 whales passing. Last year... 36,000 whales. Now, Mm. this is in less, like 1979 is not that long ago, you know what I mean? So it shows you that if we let nature give it a break, it recovers really quickly. Yeah, yeah. And and I think, you know, your work, I think, has really, I've been following your work for a long time, as a lot of people have. And something I really love about it is that it gives us options to decentralize you know particularly around like the food system and energy system and building system like this another thing that i see is um is take energy for example we're kind of doing this big shift towards renewables which is obviously good compared to large industrial fossil fuels however i could envisage that if we go down this path a certain way we could just substitute one big centralized fossil fuel energy system with one big centralized renewable system right and then we still have the issues of like centralization and one-way flow and all that kind of stuff whereas what your projects highlight is that we can actually bring that into our day-to-day lives as a collective and really just reduce the overall strain on that system do you know it's like bringing it into into the real world for us which then hopefully leads to us wanting to 
make more and more changes in our lives, you know, just to be in cycle with natural rhythms, you know. So I guess my question to you is like, how much of your work and the projects that you've done are really trying to not just implement solutions, but change the way we think and see our, how we live in the world? It, I mean, it's my projects are more about trying to be a catalyst for change. So it's really just there to inspire people to think differently and mm. show what's possible. Like there's very, other than my vertical garden, there's not many things that have scaled commercially because it's probably not something that I'm that interested in. Yeah. I'm more interested in, in making people realize that there's an incredible potential. And ultimately, everything goes back for me to zero waste. You know, I think the biggest crisis humanity faces is is malnourishment. Mm. And, I, you know, there's people much smarter than me, doctors and everything that are much smarter than me that have all sorts of reasons for this. But I think back going back to the Romans and going back thousands of years, we've understood that depression, anxiety all the health afflictions these are all the result of malnourishment and you know if you if you have animals like i do you know that if the animals are not well nourished they you know they don't communicate properly they fight they get angry i mean human beings are no different mm. and we need to solve that crisis and and the problem is that we don't we aren't aware that it exists because we've never had more food from a kilo perspective but that food's not nourishing us. And it's really interesting. I'm quite obsessed with the original Australian Aboriginal diet because I, it was regarded by doctors back in the early 1900s as the best diet on earth because it gave complete immunity to tooth decay and, and um, health for, in so many other ways, bone structure, uh, longevity. And their diet contained up to 17 times more zinc. The fiber content was 150 grams micrograms per day you know the average westerner today is lucky to have you know in, in the u.s it they don't even meet the 15 microgram um so you know it was more than 10 times what they recommend us having today and you know i i just think that we need to really stop and think and the only way the, the, the way that many doctors um recommend to solve this is by supplementing and and um you know, mining, whether it's silica or whatever it is, or diets measures of all these things, we need to take to supplement our diet to nourish us properly. And salt licks is a great, a great example in animals. You can't imagine having livestock without salt licks. You know, they mm. they need it just like we do, I believe. But the solution is in our waste. You know, seventy five percent of the nutrients that leave our body, you know, the ninety plus minerals, vitamins, uh, nutrients that we need to live like to really live properly are all in our waste and so for the last hundred years we've basically pumped our waste away from us treated as a problem i mean the word waste needs to change because i'm i'm a big believer in in uh, a word how you describe something how you verbalize something you know when i consult to businesses about changing the hospital stop calling it a rubbish bin mm. the fact that you've called it a rubbish bin yes. like start calling it a resource bin change how your or your staff view that bin and it changes everything as soon as you change i mean the word the reason why it's called spell spelling is you know it's a spell you know you cast a spell and so changing the language around how we look at materials start looking them at, at looking at them at, as resources and then suddenly you see the potential in this and organic waste is a classic one because Every person on earth produces a kilo on average per day. In, in the Western world, it's like 1.2 or 1.3 kilos of organic waste per day. And in the third world, it's 800 grams on average. But each kilo produces an hour of methane if you ferment it. And an hour of methane is an hour of, you know, it's equivalent to an hour of gas flame. Mm -hmm. If we have systems where we can actually start to utilize that waste on site, ferment it, make it safe and get it back into a food system. That's why I'm so obsessed with closed systems and, and, and um, decentralized because where you generate the waste is where you need to use it. Mm. Where you generate those nutrients is where you need to use them to grow food. So you're not sending stuff all over the world. And, and you know, so to me, I just see solutions like 
I, it really excites me that there's so much potential for change. And yeah, I think that the suburbs and our cities will be very different very mm. quickly when we start to embrace these ideas. You always talk about solutions like, and, and you actually highlight them in your work. And I think this is really important because what we often hear is all the problems and all the urgency and all the negative and then you tune into any newspaper or I don't know political rhetoric and it's always pointing the finger and naming and blaming and shaming and what's wrong in the world right rather than highlighting what we could be doing and so with all of those kind of here's all the problems rhetoric that we see I think also coupled with that we see this um we see this this line of like technology will save us you know whether it's from big corporations or government don't want we'll figure it out with this new technology or this new system or whatever it is and what it's actually saying to us as people as the general public is like you don't need to change we'll figure it out you know we'll solve your problems for you with technology whereas i think what i find really inspiring about your work is your you're bringing what's possible now into people's reality now, not going, oh, if we put some R&D and maybe in 100 years' time we'll have something that will solve this problem. You're just kind of bringing us back to simple ways of living that's like we can just do this right now and we can get out of that, yeah. that mindset and that rhetoric. You know, so like it, do you see a similar thing? Like what, what are some of the – I guess where I'm trying to go with this is like what – has motivated you to do these kind of projects? Like what out there have you seen that you're like, nah, there's the, the negatives like, no, I know I want to go in a different direction to this and show, you know, what's possible in these other areas. Well, I mean, for me, artists have always, my mum my is an artist and, and so I've grown up with the arts and my teachers in, in the Netherlands already in grade one identified that I was creative and got me to spend an afternoon a week with a local landscape painter and so I understand the power of art and how it influences and changes you you know at a core level at a fundamental level and so my work has always kind of crossed that boundary of art I suppose like I like the idea that I'm just creating it and I don't really care about whether it can be replicated it's just this is this is an art piece and it doesn't need to be considered any more than that you know, and so how, that's how I've often approached my work. And for a, a, quite a few years, I was an artist that was just exhibiting in exhibitions and, and in galleries. And I kind of thought, you know what, this is not really how it's how we're going to affect change. You know, so as as an, uh, looking at it from that perspective, I find that if you can inspire people that way, it's really important. But it, the thing that I say to kids, because I do go to schools quite a lot and speak to kids and you know the protest is a classic example protesting against politicians or against systems and the thing I always say is try and remember that no revolution started with a politician not one you can go back a thousand years there wasn't a politician that stood up and said this is what we're going to do Mm. it's people that start you know women wouldn't be allowed to vote without people standing up a hundred and something years ago and saying this is not right. Mm. It didn't start with a politician saying, I think our oh, women should be allowed to vote. You know what yes, I mean? And it's yes. whether, whether we're talking about slavery or any of these things, like these, these changes were brought on because people want, wanted those changes. And this is no different. So we need to stop. Politicians, will, they're always following. Yeah. So if we all change, politicians will change. And so I just wish that people would put that kind of energy that they put into being really angry and writing really long posts on Instagram <laughs> into changing their lives. Yes. Because if they change their lives, you become like a magnet for like-minded people. And people just want to hang out and want to be with people that are creating positive change. And you know, a, a great example is the restaurants that I've had. I've never had an issue getting staff. Like the biggest issue restaurants have is getting staff. Mm. and it's like for me it's always been oh god I've got too many people that want to work in but that's because you're creating a magnet for new ideas and I want to know how to do things in a zero waste way it's the same thing you know yeah and whether you're a person living 
in Mullumbimby and you've got a place and you're doing things a different way and you're trying to avoid chemicals and you're trying to grow your own food or you know you've got a certain way of 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 dressing yourself and you know that you, you before you know it you're surrounded by like-minded people and then you you're inspiring other people and that's I think it's it's um and that's how everything will change because ultimately we live in a capitalist world and if that's what people want then the solutions will come from that as well you know and people are underestimating that we are already in the middle of a revolution we are already living in in uh again in a hundred years from now we will look at back at this period of time and it started before COVID. i mean it's started five years ago i think it started in the, the real change started in in uh uh 2018 2017 i noticed because i've been trying to get people excited about zero waste for a long time and it just i just noticed there was a real global shift and the 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 reduction in energy demand is like people aren't talking about it but i mean it's almost half of what it was 10 years ago in a place like victoria you know the fact that you can buy an air conditioner now that uses almost 80 percent less energy of an air conditioner that, that you just bought off the shelf 10 years ago um led lighting like just changing the the traffic lights in victoria was equivalent to taking something like eighty thousand houses off grid mm. you know uh, there's so much technology and and heat pumps you know 45 percent of the energy that gets used is for heating mm. um, a heat pump uses 90 percent less energy you know there's only 10 percent of households in victoria that use heat pumps and this technology is 200 years old yeah. you know there's so much that we can do and there's so many things that we can change whether it's using recycled materials to make roads or whether it's um, using dandelions for rubber tires or whether it's, you know, this, I could go on for hours about all of the things that we could be doing that um, can restore because I'm all about restore, restoration mm. and um, eating for restoration rather than taking, you know, eating something that restores the environment, building something that restores the environment, um, consuming something that actually helps restore. And that shift is such a simple shift to make. And now it's just about getting everyone on board. Yeah. I, I, I really resonate with what you say around like, well, I wish that all the, all the people, and I'm guilty of this in the past, but wish that all the people that spent the time, you know, writing long posts or blaming this or that or whatever, spent time focusing on what they can do. Um, because I think what, what we're actually saying when we say, oh, this politician or this government or this corporation, whatever, what we're actually saying is that they have the control and like, we're actually giving it to them. By doing that, we're actually saying, by by trying to point the finger and blame, we're actually saying, I'm giving you guys agency over this and not myself, right? So there's an element of like, no, we actually have our own agency to act and to, you know, incorporate these changes into our lives. But what do you say to the people that would say, well, that's all well and good, Yos, and there's all these amazing things you can do. You can go and live off grid and homestead and make your own pickles or whatever, but that's all really hard and takes too much time and it's cost a lot of money and it's inconvenient and I'm just trying to get by in my, you know, really poorly insulated suburban house on a minimal income. Like, what do you say to the 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 people out there that say that's kind of like a privileged way of living or, you know, it's 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 too hard or it takes too much time or it's inconvenient? Well, I don't know if it's true, but apparently in Australia, we spend on average four hours on our phones a day. <laughs> so if you grew your own food, that would take less than half an hour a day. Mm. So that idea that I don't have time, it's just, you know, I find that pretty pretty um, crazy, really. I mean, it's just what you decide to spend your time on. Mm. And yeah, I think it's just a shift, a, a mental shift. The I'm a, I'm a big believer in... Um, that you know a thought is much more powerful than or it's the most powerful thing you can have right so everything you see around us was a thought at one point whether it's the piano or whether it's this table or you know this cup the computer every single element you look at was a thought that became a reality and so i think a mindset is critical to us changing our ways and the problem of course today is that with social media our minds are getting constantly diluted with a million different you know scrambling through almost seeing way too much so our, it's really difficult for us to focus on a single element or to focus in and and find peace in our minds 
and sadly you know it's an addictive thing so the more we ne- we seem to crave it and need it more when we don't have it you know what i mean yeah. like it's um yeah there's a great uh, david cho who gets interviewed by joe rogan and uh it's a great great podcast you should listen to it it is one of my favorite ones and he talks about it's a, the most recent one okay yeah i've not listened to it and uh he talks about how he you know spends time with the Hudsa. he spends like a lot of time there he's done it quite a few times and you know there's obviously no phones there's no no nothing and it takes him a week before he actually you know no longer misses it he said that's being in the desert and hanging out with these people and you know it takes an actual week for him to be completely weaned off all technology that includes synthetic lighting and and everything you know and i find that quite amazing like we we can't because our lives are constantly bombarded by that like we constantly like people get pissed off if you don't respond to an email now yes yes whereas you know the the idea of leaving the house without the phones is scary yeah you know whereas it was not that long ago we used to do that it's like be dropped off by your mum and she'd say i'll pick you up on this corner at seven o'clock and you had to be there yeah but now it's like constantly we constantly have to be in communication or even like do you remember i think that's why we like flying so much yeah, I know. We get to shut it off. But then even when we land, it's it used to be like, oh, my flight gets in at four. I'll see you out the front. But now it's like, just landed, you know, yeah. and then the next text, oh, just gone to collect the bags. And then the next text coming out now. Yeah. It's just like overly communicating and reliant on this sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's just infiltrated our world. But there's a, uh, you know, if I look at my daughter, Charlie, who's 17, she's the opposite. Like this morning, you know, she lost her phone yesterday. Well, you know, if I lost my phone, I'd be like, fuck, you know, where's my phone? I need, you know, expecting somebody to text me or mm-hmm. she couldn't care less, you know. So she said this morning, did you find your phone? No. Nah. So she's got to school with our phone, but, you know, but mm-hmm. she's been like that for years and her friends are very similar. You know, they're not, yeah, we'll get more concerned about the fact that we can't contact where the hell they are, mm. but they're, it's almost like doing the opposite of what your parents do, right? So you see your parents constantly using technology. It's like, well, I'm going to go against using technology. Whereas, yes. you know, it's it's inspiring, yeah. actually. I, I, I like it. And I sometimes look at that generation and go, you guys are so much smarter than I am. Yes, yes. I think, like, coming back to, like, you know, the, making these changes in our lives, I think some people... And again, myself, I've been guilty of this, so I can own this, but can view it sometimes as like difficult. Oh, I want to, you know, now I've got to make my own milk and now I'm going to like, you know, grow my own food. And it's like more things to do. And that's coming from a mindset of like, the, this is the path of most resistance, you know, like it's hard. Yep. So how do we switch that to being the path of least resistance, to being easy, you know, so it flows because I think that's where the change comes. And that, I guess that's what you're talking about and being an artist, you know, you're not coming in as an engineer go, or, or a marketing, a company going, here's a product, buy this. You're kind of just saying, look, this is what's possible, you know, yeah. and, and acknowledging that that change comes from within. And if we can change something, the way in which we see what we can do, then it can become easy that those things will flow like we will want to go and grow our own food we will want I to go I don't know if that's like I'll give you an example Douglas McMaster who was my head chef at Silo here hmm. he moved to back to the UK his dad wasn't well and I convinced him to go back home and then he decided to open a silo in, in Brighton and about I don't know it would have been a couple of months before opening he called me he was in tears and he said oh my God, I didn't know it was going to be this fucking hard. You know, like you never made it look like it was this hard. Yeah. And I said to Doug, well, I kept you insulated from all the problems because if everyone saw how difficult it was, then no one would do it, right? And I've done that. So the idea to do things different to the rest of us ever being easy is is just something that I can't say is ever going to, be a reality you know it's always more difficult when you want to use materials that you can't get off the shelf it's always more difficult when you want to when every you know when you can't when you're trying to do things in zero ways i'm hoping that ultimately Mm. it is easier Mm. but i think at the start it's always harder but you know what the challenge the the you feel so good when you achieve something you know whether it could just be one battle that you've just that you've picked whether it's you know making your own soy milk or whether you, you know growing your own tiger nuts or making your own tiger nut milk or whatever it is or or just convincing 
a builder to not use a certain material and then they've turned around and gone yeah we've, we've totally stopped doing that so i can't say that it's easier and i think it's a long way away yeah. from being easier but i think we fill our lives with so much garbage and so much wait time that is not nourishing us you know i think that the sense of purpose is the most important thing that human beings have and a true sense of purpose is hard work right like a lot of people they go back and they go you know recently caught up with some friends and they had a 30th anniversary of winning a grand final for the foot and you see all these guys that it's like it was the best time of their life mm. but that was because they all shared in a common goal and achieved a common goal there was a sense of purpose there and they all worked really hard to achieve that goal well that should be what we all have whereas not many of us do and i think that that is why you know there's so much so many problems with society because we don't work we don't have a sense of community we don't seem to work together to try and solve problems and we don't you know we expect solutions easier we expect others to find solutions and that's to me is just don't wait around waiting for others to try and find a solution create the solution that's why on my instagram page i say create the future you want do it yourself you know if you stop blaming others just start Mm. doing it yeah yeah i hear that it's like we we live in a world that really values comfort and convenience and you know even the idea that oh you know you you work and then you can retire and you know then you can be happy because you'll just be able to do nothing you know (laughs) like and then we have wonder why all of these elderly people have massively high depression rates yeah so that we don't actually truly, we think on a surface level that we want just, you know, to literally do nothing and eat amazing food and sleep all day. But really, we crave challenge. We crave achievement and working towards goals, like things that we find inspiring and productive. But for whatever reason, it's, we don't It's really that. sad when I read stats like that, you know, 78% of people are really dissatisfied with their job and... Um, uh, there was a stat recently that somebody uh, that I read actually in uh, when I was in LA it was in the LA Times that uh, I think it was 84% of people felt that in their roles there would be they would not be missed in other words if they didn't exist in that role wow that's you know almost 9 out of 10 people work in a situation where they feel that they're not not useful you're not, not useful or not yeah. not integral to that well, that's crazy, right? And that's why that I go back to that them that reunion of the team. Like every single player was integral in some way, shape, or form to making them win that grand final. And it's like it's no different to building a zero waste restaurant. Every single whether it's the builder and like oh, I create teams and I put teams together, and um, that you know when you meet ten or fifteen years after achieving a goal like that, they still talk about like the way that these football players talk about that team. I still get people sending me messages that worked on the greenhouse in two thousand and eight. It's like, fuck, that was hard, <laughs> but so proud of the fact that yep. we achieved that, you know. And that's what life should be, you know. That's why um, I'm really excited by that idea that that uh, an urban environment. I, I, I'm one of the people that actually really thinks it's a good thing that people are moving off the land and moving into cities because I think our cities can be our food bowls and I think that we need to relieve I mean they're moving away from agricultural areas because people have moved out you know you've got one person now managing a thousand acres of wheat whereas 60 years ago you'd have 35 40 people working on a farm like that Um, so you know because we're social beings people have moved out because there's no social interaction anymore The, the local football team doesn't exist anymore the local towns have got hardly any shops so why would you want to stay in a place like that but that to me opens up an incredible opportunity for rewilding and 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 uh giving back land for wilderness because we do not need to be growing uh using as much land to grow the food that we we currently eat we can easily do it on much less land Mm. especially if we start really using our urban environment to be productive mm. you know it's interesting like i i live in a regional area and here I've, I've been in melbourne the last few days and you know talking with a few people that live here in or in the in the midst or in the surrounds of the city and it's just different perspective you know like where i'm from the majority of people i reckon would say no we need more people in the regions and get people out of the cities and you're here saying actually the cities can be this amazing place and i think what i'm hearing is that it's not actually whether it's gone back out to the land or gone in the cities it's 
it's actually our approach to whatever we decide you know it's our approach to it it's not like um we have to do this or we have to do that or whatever the external circumstances it's like internally driven so if we want to live out in the in the country great if we want to live in the city great but what are we going to do how are we going to live when we're in that environment you know yeah. and you're giving us options you're showing us how we can live in a really beautiful way in cities that we haven't we haven't seen before like you walk down the street here and it's just concrete high rises yeah, concrete yeah, yeah. and steel but and again glass. it goes back to indigenous australian culture you know the elderly were integral to the group surviving mm. why can't we create why can't we learn from that you know they, they felt as valued as anyone else in the group uh, and often more valued mm. whereas in our society we hide built, them we built areas where mm. you know like uh, grandparents are, are really critical to gr- to kids growing up what do we do we build suburbs just for families and then we build places retirement places like 10 kilometers 20 30 40 kilometers away from where they're critical to help with raising kids and you know i think we need to learn from that that's just the wrong approach first of all mm. and it's only a very modern approach it's only something we've been doing for a very short period of time but if you look at like cultures that have succe- succeeded successfully for tens of thousands of years everyone was a was critical to the system working mm. and everyone had played a critical role there's a great national geographic it was um from january 1973 i just found it because uh, we were talking about it when i was in america and it um basically goes around the world and it's like a one and a half year study on the world's oldest people and goes to places and you know there's people that are still working every day and part of a part of a system part of a community and integral to it and they're the happiest people as well because yeah how, how it, because they give it a different perspective yeah. when you're young you you know it's really great to have people like that in our in your life and um that's something that we definitely need to fix was it, was it the Blue Zones and Dan Butner that you were, was that what you were reading? Yeah, well, this was this magazine was before the Blue Zones, so the Blue yeah. Zones was really a creation that was really I think it was a scientist in Italy that used the blue market to identify particular regions, mm. and that's why they're called Blue Zones, you know. Mm. But um, yeah, this is well before then, and, yeah. but it was really interesting how the sense of community, and belonging to a community, and being critical to to play a role is is. Um, important and and jenny's my wife's grandparents lived in sorrento and you know lived good lives and they had this you know surrounded by tea tree and so that all the dead trees tea tree he would cut up and that would light the little fire that would get the hot water so there was no hot water in the morning he'd have to get the fire going but that was the ritual you know Mm. and then jenny's mum said that's it i'm buying a hot water service this is ridiculous you know but for them it was like that not only it's the smell you know, burning tea tree in the morning, the smoke, the the ritual of actually collecting the wood. Suddenly the wood didn't need to be collected anymore. So that work during the day was no longer being done. And it actually destroyed something mm. that was critical and made them, it was part of their lives. They grew their own food, they collected wood, They it was all part of maintaining the landscape. So I felt it was a mistake mm. doing that. Yeah, well. And that, I think that that, that is something that I believe we can build urban environments and urban food systems. Like lots of people say to me, yeah, but I'm not going to grow food. It's not something that interests me. I've, I've got a belief that a third of us, if I go into schools and um, that we've got a Stephanie Alexander kitchen garden in our primary school. So I've spent a lot of time being, you know, cooking with them and helping and that sort of thing. And one in three kids really love it. And, I've got this belief that it's one in three of us, you know, really enjoy that process of growing, planting seeds, growing food. And so that means that in a city like Melbourne with three million people, a million of us could be growing food mm. for the other two million. Yeah. And, you know, there was a Swiss village that I went to and there were a whole bunch of the kindergarten and a whole bunch of buildings had green roofs, veggie patches on the roof. It wasn't the owners of the building that were doing the veggie patches. It was other people that were managing the veggie patches and their payment was like fruit and veg. Now, this has been done for thousands of years, you know, like this communal approach. Mm. So I've just got this vision in my head of cities just being so abundant and dripping with food. And not only that, then all of the 
all of those elements, you know, the aquaponic systems and like a city like Melbourne could easily be self-sufficient in, in fish and food and have more than it could ever need. But then think about all of those jobs that need to be done and, and they're, they're not like... Um, I'm a big believer in uh, like monoculture is a mistake. I also, like my family, when we started growing flowers here, when we first migrated, we were growing a dozen different things. We had tuberoses and liatris and freesias and elstromeria and lilies and there were always different things going on. It was exciting. And then as the business became more successful, they started to sort of focus on less crops. And in the end, my brother, one brother was just growing tulips and the other brother was just growing lilies. And then ultimately you know none of the kids really were interested in getting involved in the business because it was this monot although they were making money it was this monotonous yes. boring thing where you did the same thing all day well that's what we've done with every single crop whether it's almonds corn where's the joy in yeah. that you know yeah you're making money but it's obviously not enough to to incentivize any of the next generation to get into the business and that's why diversity in urban landscapes is key as well like a city an apartment building could be growing two or three hundred different foods and could have, you know, 50 or 60 different people involved in different parts. You know, somebody that's really obsessed with fish should be growing the fish. Mm. Yeah. And and uh, it's not just monocultures of the land. It's also, we do it with everything. You said yeah. before about like placing people, old people in an old folks home. That's yeah. a monoculture. That's a, a social monoculture, right? And yep. we see these, you know videos sometimes on social media what happens when you bring babies into a old folks home and this beautiful interaction of the young and old you know and that it's i guess what's coming up for me is like vandana shiva says we have a monoculture of the mind yep you know and we see everything and we just want to classify it and like section everything off into their own individual parts and that's why here we are in a city of three million people and everyone's shopping at woolies and coals to get their food rather than growing it for each other so i guess what you're trying to Really well, it's interesting. I went for a tour through the favelas in uh, in uh, Rio. You know, you've got literally hundreds of thousands of people living on in illegal housing, self-made illegal housing. But you've got every generation, and there it actually seemed like things were working much better mm. than in the legal districts where you saw no one. There was no one on the street. There was you know people cooking and cleaning and growing food you know every single container that you could imagine was being used to grow something and and to me it was like this is this is actually what the future should be you know this where we were all together um mingling and interacting mm. and the dutch do quite have a quite a good approach where they build homes for like my grandmother lived in a home she moved out when she she moved out of her house when she was in her 70s but she ended up she died a few years ago 96 but it's next to a primary school. They have this idea where, you know, the kids walk past to go home. They go home for lunch in Holland as well. So there's this constant interaction with kids, the sound of kids, you know, that idea that they're always next to each other, I think Mm. is a really good one. And of course, my grandmother had lots of great grandchildren and and so they would pop past on the way home, go and say g'day, even if it was only for five minutes. Mm. But that, you know, um, is really important, not just for the kids, but it's really important for them as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, coming up, coming back to the blue zones, I'm pretty sure one of the things that he talks about is, um, yeah, that that interaction between the elderly and the young. And he even helps. So this is Dan Butner. Even helps um, some cities with you know planning and policy planning and social planning. And I think it was Singapore. He said one of the things that he helped them do is implement a policy where, if a couple has a baby or a child if they live within a certain distance to their parents, the grandparents, then they get some sort of rent or tax relief or something like that. And basically what it's trying to do is incentivize those, create the conditions so that they interact more often. You know, yeah. if you live close, if your, your child lives close to the grandparents, you're going to see them more often, you're going to drop them off more often. And it's incentivizing that because yep. there's so many benefits in that type of policy. Yep. So it's like, we already, it's all already there. We just need to, actually just do it yeah <laughs> we just need to come back to you it's like why why wait why wait for someone else to make a policy or implement a change that like we can actually just bring this stuff into our lives and it doesn't have to mean you have to go and buy an acreage in the hinterland of the northern rivers and grow your own food and be off grid and not interact with anyone because that's actually not what it's about it's about creating that diversity creating those interactions i was, I was with ron finley who's an american uh, they call him the gangster gardener 
uh, last yes, week. I know this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Ron and I met when he was in Melbourne 10 years ago and we, we spent a couple of hours together getting to know each other and we've stayed in touch ever since. But this is my first time in LA, so I went to see him. And he's got this uh, nature strip and it's just like any other nature strip, but I've never seen anything like it, like the amount of food, bananas, sweet potatoes, apples, pears, figs. Like we were eating literally off his nature strip. And, you know, like he gave me the numbers. Like LA could easily fit itself mm. like with the climate that they've got and the amount of water that they use. And, and, you know, just with the empty land, car parks, you know. I mean, there are literally examples all over the world of how we could do it. So we don't need to... That's why, you know, this constant appetite for new technology that the technology exists right a lot of these ideas some of them are thousands of years old you know the chinese have been doing aquaponics for six thousand years the australian aboriginals had systems for raising fish you know for even longer and so none of these ideas are radical or new they're just yeah ideas that i think we need to rediscover yeah well you know as we were saying before we hit record it actually feels like we're in this incredible, exciting time at the moment. Like a lot of the stuff that we're seeing happening, okay, yeah, it feels bad and urgent, whatever. But if you actually step back and see see it from a bigger lens and, and, and beyond our timeline, we can actually say, hang on, maybe this is all the stuff that needs to be happening right now because we're going through this dramatic shift and it's an incredible time, incredibly exciting time to be part of it. Yep. Yeah. So... Um, and and you're you're a huge part of that you know like your work and and using your art and your your drive to bring that into the consciousness and awareness of all of us it's 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 having that ripple effect right and so you're part of that you're part of that transition and that mindset shift so um it's awesome to see your work man i hope i look like uh i hope my projects look embarrassing in 10 15 years time that's my goal i want the next generation to come along and make it look like what was he thinking yeah you know look at this this is a hundred times better love it well yes we might land it there because i know you got uh, a few other things to do today but um it's been awesome to catch up i appreciate your time coming on and having a conversation with me and um I appreciate your work and what you're contributing to the world. So thank you. Same for you. Like, uh, thanks for coming down to Melbourne. Oh, pleasure, man. I'd like sit here in a gin palace and <laughs> have a coffee with you and talk philosophy in the world, mate. Maybe I'll we should order a martini. Yeah. <laughs> so good, man. Thank you.